Do you want to run further, faster, or stronger? Do you want to enjoy your running more and generally be a better version of yourself? You're in the right place. I'm your host, Alan Lyle, a running coach and nutritionist. My aim is to help you improve your running from 5Ks to ultras by providing you with the knowledge and tools you need on training, nutrition, and mindset, as well as giving you the inspiration to dream bigger, achieve more in your running, and to make it fun at the same time. Welcome to the Running Rules Podcast. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Running Rules Podcast. Today, I've got a really interesting guest for you. He is Brody Sharp. He is an online physiotherapist and running coach based in Melbourne, Australia, helping runners reducing their risk of injury and increasing their running performance safely. He's the host of the Run Smarter podcast and author of the Run Smarter book. And today, I hope we're going to be talking about some of the running and injury myths he has come up with in his own personal experience and looking into the science and literature as well. So I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, talk. and I'm really glad that you could join me today. Welcome, Brody Sharp. Thanks for having me on, Alan. Yeah, excited to have a chat today. Yeah, I've um, been, as I said, you're the author of the Run Smarter book and you have your own podcast. And um, I know that you focus on um, looking at the science behind running injuries and performance and also using your own experience and clients and I think that's a really great way to come about it it's not something I haven't talked a lot about on the podcast before but having that evidence-based approach um is really not just about looking at the science but your own performance in and experience in the past as well so maybe we could start about there and you could tell us a little bit about how you got into running and physiotherapy yourself yeah, so I was a physio before I was actually a runner. I actually started off uh, as a basketballer and did that fairly competitively until my late 20s and then graduated, became a physio, basketball career, um, like went to a grinding halt. And then I'm like, oh, how do I keep fit? How do I keep active? And at the time, my sister was training for a half marathon, trained with her because she wanted some accountability and just quickly caught a passion for it. Uh, a lot of your listeners would resonate with that. And the clients that I started seeing in my clinics that were runners, I just had a huge passion for. Like my um, my energy would go through the roof when I'd see those people and I'd try to help them as best I can, try to educate them. And I'd, they would just walk away and I'd be buzzing for the rest of the day whenever I saw a, a runner um, because I was just in a general private practice and for seeing anyone under the roof. But you know, is I tried to recognize that passion, want to lean more towards it. So it eventually evolved to me launching a podcast, educating more runners. Uh, and then when I transitioned out of my private practice, like working for, for someone as an employee, I decided to branch out on my own. And then it's eventually evolved to today where I'm an online therapist and I'm just working with runners essentially, because it's mainly just podcast listeners that, get a lot of information and education. They try to manage their injuries or reduce their risk of injuries by listening to the podcast. And if they're struggling to overcome it themselves, then they usually just reach out to me. And so it's worked out to be a nice little business uh, working with people that I'm really passionate about and it um, works pretty well. Yeah. And I, I would love to know how much 
your own running experience sort of you say you caught a buzz for it but how much did um anything that you came up against in terms of injuries and performance how did that um manifest itself in where you went with educating yourself more in the area and trying to help people more what were those first experiences like as a runner i think it was a very classic experience to most runners even though i had a physio background uh i started off running quickly got injured uh trained for that half marathon i'd say did the half marathon pretty successfully but then transitioned into a marathon which was a bit too soon and I was just managing injuries throughout that training process. Um, even though I was a, a physio, I didn't really get it. I didn't really get what was required. I didn't really know much about the research. You know, you don't learn much about running related injuries in school or at uni. Um, you have to go out and do your own sort of work yourself. And so um, I quickly learned how to manage myself and the the mistakes and things that I made uh, and whenever I would race, you know, I was pretty happy with how I went, but I knew that managing injuries throughout my training sort of hindered my full potential or my performance. Cause when you spend 50% of the time being like an injury dictating what you can and can't do, how fast you can run, how far you can run, how many heels you can do and all those sorts of things, then um, it becomes a, a, an added challenge. And, you know, as a physio, if I was running into those problems, you know, recreational runners, it's very, very hard to get the right information. And even just working with runners in clinics quickly realize that there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Once injured, what to do to best manage it. And uh, yeah, I learned the hard way and tried to relate same education to, to runners so they don't have to go through what I do. But I think we learn through our mistakes, a lot of runners do, but it's just trying to identify what those mistakes are and then learn from our mistakes and hopefully do something different. But, you know, some people it's a little bit later in the game before they're like, okay, maybe I should do something different. Some people go, you know, around the the mousetrap a little bit too many times. Yeah. It sounds quite similar to how I got into my area, which I'm a running coach and nutritionist. And it, a lot of that came from making mistakes early on in my running career, especially around nutrition and then going back and educating myself more about that area and really being passionate then about trying to help runners avoid those mistakes because no one told me in you know in my first couple of marathons that you needed to eat during the marathon or take any fuel on um and that is just such an such an easy thing to sort of a concept to grasp if if you know about it but if no one's telling you then you don't know where, what you don't know whether to do it and 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 you can run into problems and it sounds like that's the same in a way a similar journey that you had with injuries i've been was quite lucky in the start of my career with with injuries and now sort of learning to manage a couple of things a bit more that i've as i've got older that have come on and as I've, as i've pushed my performance but it definitely sounds like a similar journey in terms of uh, of wanting to help people avoid those those issues that you have had yourself. Um, I'd like to follow, if we can, the, the narrative of the book a bit, because I think it really covers two areas that recreational runners are really keen to get right, and that's preventing injury and increasing performance. Um, so you, you touched on it a little bit, but let's talk about how people 
can get injured and what is what the main reason for those injuries are in the in the most part Yeah. Um, so just to sort of expand upon that. Yeah. So the book, the run smarter book is, has two main parts. So the first half of the book is 10 chapters and it's all about each chapter is a different component to what you can do to reduce your risk of injuries. Cause you know, when I talk with my podcast audience, the number one thing they want to do is reduce their risk of injuries. Cause they know how disruptive an injury can be and how depressing it can be, frankly. But then once, you know, you sort of laid down the foundation, the next thing that people want to do, they increase their running performance. Um, not everyone wants to, but I'd say most of the people would, would like to. Um, and so that's what the second half of the book, again, 10 chapters, each with a new component to help increase your running performance safely. And when it comes to running-related injuries, it boils down to some simple concepts that a lot of people can um get their minds around. And essentially what you need to do is think of your body as every muscle, ligament, bone, tendon has a certain capacity to tolerate load. And that when you train, when you run, when you do strength training, cross training, all those sorts of things, you apply load to your body. Very simple, very simple concept. But because every component, every structure in your body has a certain load capacity, what we want to do in our training is load up to the point where we hit something, what we call like your adaptation zone or your adaptation sweet spot. We don't want to underload you. If you're used to running, you know, uh, 20 miles and we run for two miles, that's probably not enough to stimulate uh, adaptation response. If you're, if you're used to squatting 60 kilograms, body weight squats probably won't move the needle and st stimulate enough to trigger an adaptation response. Um, but we also need to recognize our limitations and our capacities because if you exceed that capacity, that is when your risk of injury starts to climb. And if it's done repeatedly, if it's ignored, if it if there's other things like your recovery and things that are um, fluctuate your capacity, which we can talk about later, uh, but essentially exceeding your capacity, an abrupt shift in training, an abrupt shift in some sort of variable that exceeds your ability to adapt and instead it starts breaking down. That's essentially what, what the literature will say is about 80% of running related injuries. Um, overuse injuries are all due to overload. It's all due to either repetition or, um, you know, amplification of load and exceeding your load capacity. And so that's where we need to be very careful with training loads. And that's where we need to be very careful with recovery and those sorts of elements. Um, because if you do it enough, if you hit that adaptation sweet spot and you do it enough times with enough repetition, then that adaptation zone grows. You now are getting stronger and you now have to challenge yourself more and more to reach that sweet spot. And that's usually what we want to try and do with your strength training, with your running, with your marathons and performances and all those sorts of things. It's just about chasing that adaptation sweet spot. Yeah, that's... That's a great um, answer to that question. And um, I want to circle back just quickly to to the book. And uh, I think the book m makes a really great job of explaining this stuff in a, in a way that, you know, anyone can pick up and understand. And that's, you know, I, ha I don't come from a medical uh, background, um, 
but I was able to pick up the book and I love the way that there's a narrative in the book, you know, it follows a runner and it, it sounded like you were talking to me in that. It was <laughs> a, a guy approaching his forties with two, two sons. Now I've hit 40 now, but uh, that was me a few years ago. Um, and going through all of these mistakes that a, a runner usually or can often go through, um, and overloading being one of the the key problems that is going to cause injury. Um, talk to us a little about a little bit about how people could spike this load because I think that's really key to to understanding some of these injuries. Because some people might say, "Well, I haven't done you know extra mileage this week, so how could I possibly have brought this injury on by overloading?" But there's quite a lot of nuance into what overloading means and how someone might actually overload their training. Can you give a few examples um, other than, well, uh, we can start with with volume if you want, um, but, but leading on from there, other things that m people might not think of when we're talking about overloading training? Yeah. Um, if we're talking purely mechanical load, we are Yes, mileage would be the number one thing that people are familiar with and probably the number one thing that people track. It's like, okay, how much is my mileage per week and making sure that isn't, you know, an abrupt shift, an abrupt increase. Um, but there are tons of other variables in there that we want to be careful with. If we're talking about um, running specifically, the number one, uh, the number one under mileage would be intensity. Because you can run the same mileage, you can run 40 kilometers one week, you can run 40 kilometers the next week and easily overload yourself if it's a lot faster. And so that's where intensity needs to come into it. Um, terrain is another one. So hills would be, you know, your classic. I know a lot of people that have got running related injuries because they have made an abrupt swing to introducing too many hills. And all of these things are fine. Like your speed work is fine. Hills are fine. Everything like that, but needs to be within your adaptation sweet spot. And if you do decide to introduce hills, just make sure it's gradual and make sure that, you know, that you, you take your time with that adaptation process. Because if you run downhill, um, you know, there's a lot more load that goes through your knees, a lot more load that goes through the ITB research with very, very clear that downhill running is um, strenuous on the ITB. Um, if you run uphill, we're looking at all the propulsion mechanisms. So we're looking at the plantar fascia, the Achilles, the calf, uh, all of those sorts of things. And so it is a very different load on your body and therefore it can increase your risk of an abrupt shift. So we've got mileage, we've got intensity, we've got terrain. Our shoes would be the next one. Um, if you decide to start wearing a shoe that's a structure or design or size that's very different to what you're used to, then that transition process needs to be gradual. There's a lot of people that have transitioned to minimalist or barefoot shoes too abruptly, and they've developed plantar fasciitis or foot stress fractures or um, Achilles issues, and essentially just because your body wasn't ready for it. Um, there was a, a paper released where they had a whole bunch of um, recreational runners. They gave them barefoot running shoes and they were used to just sort of like traditional running shoes and gave them like instruction manuals on how to safely transition. And they had, um, not, none of the runners really abided by all of the rules and 12 out of the 14 participants in that study got injured. And so that's like an enormous, uh, 
injury rate in such a small study, but goes to show that if you make a huge swing from something like that transition to, to actual barefoot style shoes is a big, big shift. And body just catches up. There's um, a publication warning runners about uh, like super shoes, carbon fiber shoes, and the occurrence of stress fractures at the midfoot or around that, that area, just because, you know, sometimes it puts different stress on the body. And sometimes if you're not used to it and you run fast in super shoes and you want to race in all of them, and, you know, sometimes these stress fractures are appearing in, in runner. So we do need to be very careful with how we introduce those. Yeah, that's a a great point about shoes and, and really interesting that study. Um, it, it kind of shows that I guess they were, they were looking for a, a certain, um, a certain design of, uh, of, of study there that is going to show whether whether injuries were more prevalent in the barefoot running but actually what it showed was people you know people's tendencies to just fire on and not look at guidance and i think we're we're all quite keen as runners who want to push ourselves on to do things that we probably know we probably shouldn't do and we think oh we'll probably get away with it and sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. It was very interesting that most of those people got got injured by not following the instructions. It's also interesting what you said about um, super shoes because I, I remember this, and this is purely anecdotal. But my, the first time I ran a marathon in um, in super shoes and carbon shoes was in Berlin, which is dead flat. And I finished that and I had really sore quads. And I was thinking, I only usually get sore, sore quads from a lot of downhill running. And it just shows that there's probably something else at play there with different types of shoes. It was a pair of shoes I hadn't run that much in because I was saving them for, for race day. And yeah, it, it just shows that changing those those shoes can really make a big difference. And I think a lot of it, there's so, there's so many things that have 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 come about in sort of the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But when Born to Run came out, everyone wanted to do minimalist shoes and that was the best way to run. And now everyone's shifting to to um, more cushioning and higher stacks and more carbon plates. Is there anything that you can sort of give as a, a guide as to what people should be looking for in shoes and how to 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 get the best out of shoes, but in a safe manner? If we're talking about performance, uh, research is pretty clear that lighter shoes help increase running economy. Um, you just have less weight. And even if it's just, you know, 200 grams less, that can increase your running economy by one or 2%, which is significant. Um, just because yes, it's not a lot of weight, but it's at the end of a long lever that, you know, that, that effect amplifies the longer it is or the, the more it's attached to that longer lever. And that's uh, pretty good evidence when it comes to sort of anything up to a half marathon is good. Um, but if you're wearing lighter shoes, usually it's accompanied by less support and, um, there is like new technologies developing with, you know, really light foam that's still quite a supportive shoe. But generally speaking, there are, if, you, if you've got a lighter shoe, it's usually less supportive and a bit more minimalist. But um, while that improves your running economy, doing it for something like a marathon where you're running for, 
three, four, five hours, probably you need a bit more support. Um, and so that's where the likelihood of injury probably comes in and where the trade-off of transitioning, you could probably get away with a half marathon because it's not that strenuous. It's not like this grind, um, but marathons, there's a lot of running fatigued. And if you have less support with a fatigued running, you're probably going to have a, a bit of trouble. So that's where we might say, you know what, if performance is your goal, maybe the super shoes, because, you know, evidence will show you that's, um, that does really well for performance. Even recreational runners tend to benefit in these shoes, whether it's placebo or whether it's um, the carbon plate or whether it's the foam that returns a lot of energy, uh, converts a lot of that ground reaction force into forward momentum. Um, a lot to be said on that. Um, don't know if you want to dive into that or not, but uh, when that's for performance on the performance side of things. When it comes to injury prevention, the research will show that we just want to stick to either what you're used to, what you've adapted to, or what's comfortable. And very, very poor correlation to foot uh, shape to shoe type. Uh, if you have flat feet, people might say you might need a stability shoe. There's no correlation there that will reduce your risk of injuries. Um, but, you know, that's why we fall back on just sticking to what you're comfortable with and what you're used to. And if you want to try something like a super shoe or a, a lighter minimalist shoe that you haven't been adapted to, just make sure the transition process is really gradual. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about stability shoes because, it, again, it's something that I was told way back I need I overpronated and needed to wear stability shoes. I was wearing stability shoes probably for, I would say, three or four years, and I wasn't that that um, I wasn't that serious at the time about running, so I wasn't running too much in them. Um, as I got more serious, and th this was this was my own um, sort of conclusion that I made, which was, you know, very an anecdotal and and probably not backed by any kind of science, but I, I, I felt like I didn't really need those stability shoes. I felt like maybe my gait had changed and that's probably not even true either. Um, but I think a lot of people will go to a running shop. This is the, the typical way that I think a lot of new runners get start, go to a running shop, get, um, a five, 10 second gait analysis done and be told, yes, you need this type of shoe or this type of shoe. And, how much is in that? I mean, why do stability shoes exist? Are they really needed to stop this overpronation over that is talked about in, in running circles? Or is that kind of a myth? Can we get used to any kind of shoe that we find comfortable to run in? There's a few things there. Okay, why do stability shoes exist? I would say it's either like marketing, um, you know, people do an amazing job of marketing certain types of shoes and you can easily have a look at a poster of someone who has flat feet and they're standing barefoot and their arches are collapsing in, their knees are rotated inwards and they sort of like look a bit uh, faulty, but then, you know, next to it, they're in orthotics or they're in stability shoes and everything magically aligns. Uh, we don't, we know that that doesn't happen. Even with orthotics, it doesn't miraculously realign you. Um, people still pronate to the same degree in stability shoes as they would in some other shoes. Um, I think marketing has a role, but also at the same rate, some people feel really good in stability shoes. Um, I would highly recommend people gravitate towards those if you've tried 
other shoes, neutral shoes or minimalist shoes, and you don't really feel that good in them, but stability shoes, you feel great, gravitate towards that. That's why we have to come back to this comfort filter because everyone moves a little bit differently. Everyone has their different biomechanics and certain shoes will accentuate or, um, you know, help you through that preferred movement path and it will feel a lot more comfortable. And whether that's stability shoes for you, whether it's minimalist shoes for you. Um, so we, we can gravitate towards that comfort filter or we can look at a runner's history and see if they've got a long history of a certain type of injury or just one injury over and over and over again. If you have someone with um, tibialis posterior tendon tendinopathies, which is just like behind the bone of your ankle, if that's the, usually the one that gets loaded when someone does go into pronation. Um, if they've had a long, long history of that always recurring and they wear minimal shoes, maybe we try them in stability shoes. Sometimes it won't work, sometimes it will. And if it does, maybe we gravitate towards that because maybe they haven't found their preferred shoe yet and we need to try something different. Um, but a lot of times people are told that they overpronate. Some people rat rationale, oh, you have flat feet, so you need stability shoes. But I've seen the same health professional say you have really high arches, therefore you need stability shoes. And like it's two complete opposite foot types, but their rationale for stability shoes, the same. And we sort of buy into it. But uh, like I say, there's research done on this. There's zero correlation between foot shape and shoe type and to reduce your risk of injuries. In fact, they actually did a study that looked at um, they categorized a whole bunch of runners in terms of they overpronate or pronate stability, uh, high arch and and really high arch, and they got them to wear a whole bunch of different types of shoes. Um, and the ones who pronate, uh, they all went into neutral shoes, I should say, and the pronation group actually got injured less than the neutrals and the high arches and the really high arches. They actually got injured more than the pronation and what we need to know is that pronation is not only safe, but it's actually helping protect us from absorbing really high loads of force. <laughs> when we hit the ground, we kind of want to be, we want to have a little bit of a sag because we want a little bit of time to absorb that load. If we are very rigid, if you hit the ground without bending your knees, there's a long, large shock that's going to go through your body and it's going to um, be very abrupt, you know, not very good for the body compared to if you land with a soft knee, similar to when you pronate, we actually want that movement. And that's probably why in that study, we see that people that have, you know, more pronation actually get injured less in a neutral shoe. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful for me because I have become quite uncomfortable with recommending people go and do this, this normal thing of going to the, the running shop, get, get a, get a five or 10 second gait analysis done and buy shoes based on that because I didn't really feel, I didn't know if there was a lot of, if there was any science behind it, but it didn't feel right to me in terms of this is the right shoe for you. This is the right shoe for you. It does seem a very individualistic and, and comfort based feel sort of and and it's an, another thing that was interesting there. You mentioned the post tibialis, which is where I've typically have had a lot lot of problems. Not not bad problems, but it's just a, a niggle that's been there for a long time. So possibly maybe 
um, trying a, a stability shoe may have some benefit there. It might be interesting to try that out. Um, I do like the shoes that I have, though, so they feel very comfortable, <laughs> uh, the best ones that I've had. Um, but sort of ex expanding on the, the comfort feel and also thinking about the placebo effect of, of some, some of these things. You mentioned super shoes and how maybe some of that is from a, a placebo effect of we're putting these these expensive shoes on that we're told that they're they're going to make us faster and so they do make us faster because we believe in it i'm wondering not necessarily about that particular example but placebo effects in general where you know yourself that there is not a much research behind it how do you balance that up because i get this in the nutrition world as well where there's certain things that people will take supplements and there's not a lot of evidence behind them, scientific-backed research behind them doing the thing that people think that they do, but people like doing it because there is a placebo effect. How do you balance that up? Because if there's a placebo effect there, there is a, a benefit. So I, I feel sometimes that I can't say, as long as there's no risks to doing it, that I shouldn't say, oh, there's not much evidence behind that because you don't want to burst someone's bubble. So how do you approach that with things that you don't really believe in, but people do, and you see that coming to you? I approach it really easily because I have a lot of injured runners who just say, what about massage? What about dry needling? What about foam rolling? What about this? And um, I always say, have you tried it? How does it feel? And um, if they say, oh yeah, I've tried it. Uh, I don't really feel like it does much of a difference. I say, don't worry about it. Um, but for those who said, yeah, I have tried it. I actually feel really good. Um, I like to say, good, continue to do it. That's great. I want you to still do it um, just so you know, or depending on what it is. Um, let's just say we use the example of a massage. Um, and they're like, oh, I went and saw a, a, a masseuse. They said I had all these trigger points. They said my hips were out. They said that I had, um, I needed my ITB released um, and I have a curvature in my spine that needs to be corrected. And they massaged me and I um, I felt great afterwards. I say, okay, good. Um, continue doing that. Uh, continue getting your massage if you feel great afterwards. But just so you know, this is a short-term effect to your um, to your issue. Um, we want to make sure that we address the short-term treatments with long-term outcomes as well. So that's where there's really good evidence that strengthening or manipulating your cadence or X, Y, Z is really shown to improve your injury and stuff in the long term. But if you want to continue seeing this massage therapist for once a week just to help with the short-term stuff, then it feels really good for you, so be my guest. I don't really delve into science because it works for them. It's a really good placebo for them. And, yeah, I like to stay out of it because it actually does help them and it actually will help their recovery. So I just leave it there. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Um, like you say, you don't need to get too too down into the weeds, especially if someone feels like it's helping. But yes, yeah, some of that language that comes across, oh, this is out of line and you need to do this and that and the other, maybe not as helpful, especially if there's if you feel that that's not you know the the issues that are, are the problem. As you said before, eighty percent of injuries are from an abrupt load uh, change rather than something's out of line or um, something's wrong with your, your body. Do you, yeah. do you hear that I, kind of talk a lot? I might change my answer a little bit um, because 
when just that one example that I just gave about the masseuse, uh, if someone did, if a massage therapist did say that their hips were out of line or their ITB needs to be released or something, I probably would like to educate that runner to make them feel like they're not faulty. Um, because I've had a lot of that clients, um, see a therapist and come to me absolutely devastated because they've got one leg longer than the other, or they feel like their hips are out, or they feel like, you know, their body's letting them down. That's when I would probably step in and tell them the evidence to kind of reassure them. Because if they feel like they're running and they've got a faulty body, that's not going to help anyone. Um, it's going to help the therapist because they're going to keep coming back like two times a week to get their hips adjusted. But the running long-term stuff, um, won't definitely won't help, especially if they have a lot of fear and it's an alarming sort of language. So I would probably push back on that. But, um, in terms of the therapy, I would ask about the therapy and, you know, maybe it's still warranted if it makes them feel good. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great approach. What, uh, what, common myths do people come in and say this is wrong with me um which covers up the fact that really the injury has come probably from an abrupt load shift what things do you hear on quite a common basis that people might have heard themselves on this podcast if they're listening um they've probably been told that their glutes aren't switching on they've probably been told they've got one leg longer than the other they've probably been told that they overpronate um, they're too stiff or they're too weak or they're too, I don't know, they're too dominant in one area or something's not firing or switching on. Your core's not strong enough, like your posture or um, spine is out of line. Like those sorts of things are pretty common, I guess what we call faulty. Um, your body's like failing you for some particular reason. Uh, and they just think they're super vulnerable. They think like the body is this really vulnerable structure that falls apart and falls out of place as soon as you um, do something wrong. Uh, but like we've said at the very start, it's due to an abrupt change. Like we know that 90% of the population has some sort of leg length discrepancy. So odds are you probably do have a leg length discrepancy if you get tested. Um, but if we delved into your history, maybe you went from 40 kilometers per week to 60 kilometers per week, and then you got injured. And then you went to the therapist and they said, oh, you, you're injured because you're let one leg's longer than the other. It's causing your hips to go out of place. And, you know, then they just follow that narrative and it really, um, people get really concerned. But if someone wants to tell you, hey, look, you know, maybe your knee got a bit overloaded because it wasn't used to doing that 60 kilometer week and we still need to pull you back a little bit and then build you back up very gradually and you'll be fine. Um, it doesn't get a lot of, I guess, buy-in, like I guess from a marketing perspective or like a, you know, a business perspective, it's, you know, it's pretty basic information, but that's why runners get injured. So we have to follow the evidence in that case. Yeah. I feel like a lot of things when you get down to the real truth as is the the message that's not very exciting and oh yeah it's not clickbaity it's not going to get all these like um but but some people like the the narrative i don't know like if some people if someone goes to a shoe store and the shoe store owner takes really good care of them goes through the gate scan ex explains everything explains their anatomy explains the shoes and those sorts of things that's a good experience that a lot of people like and so they walk away feeling really good. Um, I don't really want to dismiss or, um, you know, really talk down to these these people, but 
I do like to follow the research and the evidence at the same time. And if people are always getting injured and they're blaming their shoes the whole time and they're spending hundreds of dollars trying to find these new shoes, you know, that's when we kind of need to have this conversation about what is actually effective and what the research actually shows um, because it helps it helps the runners in the long run. And I think down the track, people like to be educated. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And I think that leads us on quite well to running form as well, which I quite like to touch on um, because there's definitely some myths in terms of what is good and bad running form. And I think it's it's quite also important to understand that everyone's different and everyone has a different body and we probably adapt to the body that we're in. Um, and there's quite a lot of these um, perfect running form cues that you often see, you often don't see out in the, the real world when you were looking at everyone that's running there's a lot of different forms out there. So what are the kind of um, myths and truths around good and bad running form that you hear and see? Yeah. A lot of the runners that I work with, um, they send me running videos of them on a treadmill from the side, from behind, so I can have a look at them and see how things, how things are. And I always tell them, I'm not one that's going to look at the very minute angles, degrees of pronation, degrees of like knee flexion, hip extension and um, posture and all those, those sorts of alignment things. I'm not the nitty gritty type of thing. I look for the big rocks. I want to say, okay, how's this runner? Um, are there any really obvious big rocks that we need to address? If there aren't any big rocks, what are kind of the smaller rocks? What are the pebbles? What are the grains of sand? And we don't really bother about the small stuff because you're always going to find something that's uh, away from perfection, if there ever is one. But you're always going to find a little bit of something. And what we want to do is say, okay, is it a big rock that's going to really put them at a really high risk of injury? Or is it really correlated to their injury history? So with you, if you had your tibialis posterior tendon, really long history, always happens, and we find that you have a crossover running pattern. So if your right foot lands underneath you on the left-hand side of you, so if you had a treadmill with a, a line straight down the middle of the belt and your right foot is making contact on the left-hand side of that line, part of me thinks maybe if there's a long history of that type of injury, maybe we want to widen that step width a little bit. Maybe we want that right foot to land on the line or just to the right-hand side of that line and see how you feel. Um, that There would be some justification for that. But in the same rate, if someone does have this crossover step pattern and never is injured or never has that type of injury, it's not warranted for change. Um, so there's certain running elements that we want, want to address. One would be if someone isn't injured, the big rocks I'm talking about, one is a really low cadence. We know that people don't really thrive with low cadence. It's not very efficient and it accumulates forces um, unnecessarily, one might say. Um, so that's the amount of steps that you take per minute. Some people have a really low cadence, so they usually step, their steps are usually quite large and uh, usually accompanied with like an overstride, which is another big rock that we want to address. I don't see it that often, to be fair. Yes, you will contact in front of you. Yeah, you, you kind of have to um, if you want to continue running forward. If you try to, if you really contact directly underneath you or behind you, you're going to hit your head on, head on the pavement pretty quickly. So you need to contact in front of you, but we're talking over striding in front of you. We know that that's a trait that 
we kind of want to get rid of for most people. Um, and if your cadence for most is like, if it's like under 160 steps per minute, uh, we know that most would probably thrive a bit north of that. Let's, you know, hover around the 168 to 175 or, you know, in that particular zone um, because it just distributes the loads a little bit more. Um, apart from that, you know, if someone isn't injured, I would just let them run. I just let them, even if there is um, what we deem like imperfect sort of movements, go for it. Um, the other, the, those things, the cadence and the the overstriding will help your running performance if it is there and we remove it and also reduce your risk of injury. So I'd focus on those two things if I ever see it. Yeah, I think you'd like my physio because she has also suggested that I maybe have a wider, a slightly wider stance. Um, haven't haven't looked at my running form and obviously with the the history of the post tibialis. So um, I will feed that back to her that she's uh, excellent. She's on the right track with that. <laughs> um, it doesn't doesn't come very naturally to me. It feels very uh, awkward to try and do that though, and I think that's one thing that that you allude to in the book that it's it's quite difficult sometimes to make these these changes um and it was quite interesting i think you, you you talked about some studies where people would were told to to or given cues to run differently and eventually were able to change their running form but it didn't actually um result in for the most part actual any uh, benefit in running economy so they may have tried to iron out and made their, their form better, but it didn't actually make them perform better. So um, from a performance point of view, um, I'm interested in cadence because I definitely feel like cadence is, is one of the things that can, can increase and get, give us more performance. Um, one thing that I was interested in that you talked about in the book was that your cadence at a slower pace should be the same as a faster pace and i've heard both sides of this and i've tried it myself anytime i try to run with a faster cadence at a slow pace feels really cumbersome and and heavy can you explain why that might be useful for preventing injury or or is it not for that reason what is the reason why you might want to run slow paces but still with a high cadence yeah, I'm not sure of my exact words in the book, but um, my, I guess the ideas for runners would be if you are running really slow, so you're going a really slow, easy run, your cadence shouldn't necessarily be directly related to your speed. If you run really fast, we want to still be in like a, say, 175, 180, sometimes more. Um, yes, if you're running really slow, so we go two ends of the extreme, your cadence will be a little bit slower, but not like a linear sort of relationship. Um, it might go down to say 170 or something like that. Like we're talking really abrupt shifts. If you're sprinting, if you do like strides or something, your cadence is going to be really high because it gets to a point where your step uh, length can't change. And the only way you can get faster is by increasing your cadence. So I guess we're mainly talking somewhere in the, in the middle, but why I um, bring this to the awareness of some runners is because we want an ideal cadence. We want an optimal cadence for you because it's very efficient. We're not um, 
hitting the ground too hard. We're not moving up and down with a large amplitude. We're converting a lot of our momentum to forward momentum. So it's very efficient. We can still be efficient when running slow, but I've seen a lot of runners when they do their really easy run, their cadence is way, they've dropped way out of the optimal range. So there would still be an optimal range and you might be on the low end of the optimal when you're running really slow, the high end of optimal when you're um, running really fast, but we don't want to drop out of that optimal. And I've seen huge shifts like people getting into the 158s or low below 160 when they're running really slow. And I look at them and they're just a little bit sloppy. They're, there's a lot of moving parts. They're not like this efficient spring that they used to when they're running sort of a little bit faster. We want to still keep that efficient spring. We still want to keep some economy, some like good, efficient um, springiness to our step. And part of me thinks that if we focused on a little bit of a higher cadence when running slower, then that laziness, that um, efficiency can pick back up. And so that's sort of uh, what I want to draw awareness to when it comes to to people running. And you will know yourself, like if you try to maintain a 180 cadence when you run really slow and it feels really off, um, you know, you'd probably want to bring it down. My really slow run is like a six minute, six and a half minute per kilometer. And my cadence is still around the high 170s. And when I run quite fast, it's still about 180 or 185. So my cadence doesn't fluctuate too much, but I understand that every run is different. Um, someone else's would, that range would be a little bit wider, but it's still, with, it should still be within optimal, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, it, it's interesting for me. I, I had a real um, serious focus on this a, a number of years ago, probably 2016, I think, 2017. I was trying to hit a certain time for the half marathon. And I thought cadence is the thing that's going to get there. And I'd heard this number of 180. So I was training with music with 180 on. And it definitely increased my cadence um, during that during that period of training. And I, and I reached my goal. I'm a lot faster now. And my cadence has gone back to sort of around about the 170, low 170s in a race. Interesting. And um, yeah, obviously my stride length has got a lot longer. And I think a lot of that is because I'm not going up and down as much. I'm much more sort of for, you know, propelling forwards a lot more. Um, but my slow running cadence is still probably low 160s. When when I pick it up, um, it just feels like a lot more effort for that that extra turnover. But I do definitely recognize what you were saying there about the form being a bit sloppy, and I can sometimes feel that. So maybe it's thinking about tidying up that form as much as trying to improve the cadence and that might that might help on slower days but i find when the cadence picks up my pace picks up my heart rate picks up and then mm -hmm. i feel like i have to to eat take even shorter steps to try and reduce that pace again um and it just becomes becomes this cycle of um getting shorter and shorter steps and sort of almost it taking more energy for that turnovers, but it's definitely something I will think about going back to and having a look at because I think I can definitely recognize that cue of what you're saying about a, a sloppy form and and sometimes not feeling that sort of fluid on easy days, um, which is really interesting. And I think something can I, add, I can take away. Um, yeah, sure. Definitely, 
a trap that people fall into when they try to increase their cadence because if they've been told that they need to increase their cadence by five or ten percent or something like that um they come to me and they say what the hell brody like it was meant to be more economical and i'm out of breath my heart rate's through the roof and all that sort of stuff and you look at their watch and they're just running really fast and they've essentially not been taking shorter steps their step length is exactly the same they're just trying to turn their legs over faster and they're just running really fast and so that's where practice on a treadmill can be really useful because you can set a fixed speed and then you have no choice but to change your step length otherwise you hit the front of the treadmill so if you want to stay on the belt and maybe listen to a metronome um, that's you know beeping at 170 beats per minute and keep run to the beat that's going to be a really nice drill or you know opportunity to practice that yeah and just just to clarify i think i said the magic 180 number um i think we both acknowledge that there is no magic number and everyone is is different um i'm i'm relatively tall i'm about six foot so i guess that's fairly average but um i know runners are a lot shorter especially females who have a much much higher turnover um and i guess that is you know is to be expected because you know if you've smaller levers then they need to turn over faster to generate that that speed is it as simple as that or it, i guess there's going to be a lot of variation between people as well regardless of height but and build but yeah what do you see there's there's a lot of research dr izzy moore is out of the uk and has a a large publication on running efficiency and a lot of work on cadence and you know that in that paper they never come up with a magic number there is no magic number because everyone's different um there's an optimal cadence for you you need to find out what that is for most it's going to be between 165 and 175 or something like that but yeah there is other research um adam 1040 is the the author he actually um published a paper talking about optimal cadence for different runners and uh, reach the conclusion that taller runners, their optimal cadence is lower. So maybe if you're if you're a tall runner, your optimal cadence might be in the low 160s. I don't know. Um, might be in the mid 160s, but no one should be striving for, not everyone should be striving for 180. Um, I think a shorter runner, probably 180 is a good optimal cadence for them, but um, you need to do your own testing yourself. Yeah, definitely. Definitely going to be individual to everyone. And um, I, but I think in general, what, what we're saying is for most runners that picking up the cadence is going to translate in, in the most part to an increase in performance, because, um, really there's only two ways that you can, you can get faster and that's by increasing your cadence or having a longer stride length. And that stride length, as, as I sort of alluded to, isn't sort of re overreaching, as you said, you don't want to be overstriding and trying to sort of reach out in front of you uh it could come from a more efficient you know push off um but that's probably going to come from trying to increase your cadence as well i think um taking to getting that to be more efficient is going to be beneficial for most people who don't already have a high high turnover maybe people who are at the very high end are going to struggle to to increase that is that what you would find yeah um you know you say you can change increase or change your step length or your cadence it's how we have to move forward um you know you can if you are stronger if you have stronger legs you can push off the ground harder and still contact with the, your foot somewhere underneath your body and your stride your you know 
I guess, step length becomes greater because you're pushing off harder and sort of producing more force. Um, so if people can think about it that way, that might be a bit easier as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a much better way of putting what I was I was trying to put into words. <laughs> um, one other thing that surprised me, I guess, in the, in the book was this idea um, fairly early on in the book that you're talking about um, more more opportunities to hit that adaptation sweet spot. So, um, but to put it into context, I think the example roughly that you gave in the book was instead of running two times a week for 50 minutes, which would be a hundred minutes running five times a week for 20 minutes each time is a better way of splitting that load up because it gives you more opportunities to hit that ad adaptation sweet spot and, and, and more opportunities to progress. Um, can you, can you talk a bit more about that concept and also how do we know when we're hitting that, that sweet spot as well? Because, um, one thing I'm thinking from, from a real life perspective, if we take my training, for instance, um, I, I train six days a week, but quite a lot of those or a few of those are going to be easy runs, maybe six, seven, eight miles. Would it be right in saying then to, it could be better to put in an extra, maybe a, a double day, leave that that recovery day as it is, but put a double day in there and split one of those easy sessions into uh, two threes or two fours? I see that quite a lot. If I've I've seen a couple of elite training plans, they will you you they will go out for a double day and and do maybe only four or five miles in in the afternoon. And I'm I would be thinking someone who's doing a hundred miles a week as a marathoner, how could four or five miles be still beneficial to, to them going out and doing that? Um, talk to us a little bit more, more about um, this idea of, of frequency in a training plan. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. Um, in the example in the book, we're talking about a new runner who's wanting to you know, train for their first race or, you know, train for their first five or 10 K. And usually like as a new runner, they just push themselves to the max or just run until they're really tired and then stop. And then they're sore for two days. And then once they're not sore, they get back into it and they push themselves again. Um, we always want to think like you you explained, like we want more opportunities to hit our sweet spot. If you only reach that adaptation sweet spot twice in the week, that is giving your body two opportunities to adapt and have the body recognize, oh, you want me to get better at this. Let me try to develop stronger calves, you know, bigger tendons, stiffer tendons. Um, let me try and adapt to this stimulus. What better opportunity than to give you more opportunities in the week to adapt to that stimulus. And it doesn't take a lot, especially in this example as a new runner, it doesn't take a lot to reach that adaptation zone. But if we, you know, sprinkle it, sprinkle that mileage more across the week, not only are we allowing for more opportunity to hit that sweet spot, but we also don't need to recover as hard or as long as if you ran for 40, 45 minutes and were sore for two days, um, you could run for 15, 20 minutes, still hit that sweet spot, and then you're fine by the next day to do it again. And so there's a, a good balance between load and recovery because we always need to balance the two. You asked, how do we know if we've hit our adaptation sweet spot? That's a really tough question. And the... 
the real answer is you don't know. Um, we know if you have overloaded yourself because you'll develop an injury, you start to get these like signs, early signs of injury. And we know that we need to push back because we're really flirting with the boundaries. Um, so listening to your body signs and symptoms, but if you are new to a certain exercise or new to running or new to a fitness class and you're not sure where your adaptation zone is, just start with the really conservative, start with something you know you can do and then just slowly build upon that. Because in that scenario, the only risk that we run is underloading you and really not reaching that adaptation zone, which is fine because eventually we're going to progress till we hit that sweet spot. And then we just ride the wave from there. Um, that would usually be my best advice for someone who's, new to a sport or new to an activity um, and is wondering where to start, start embarrassingly slow, embarrassingly low, embarrassingly short and build up from there because eventually you'll hit your sweet spot. And like we say, we run the risk of underloading you initially, but we're happy to take on that risk. Yeah. I, I love this approach for new runners actually, because I do think um, a, a common approach would be to just run two or three times a week at the start and, really it it's going to be difficult when a new runner starts and know whether they they're going to like it and want to push on but if you get to the point where you do want to push on two or three times a week is really probably not going to be enough to to push you very far in in the world of running especially if you want to progress onto longer distances um so i i really like this idea of starting off with a really small dose across a lot of days uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think um, for anyone out there who is only maybe running three, four days, putting an extra day in could really sort of push you on a bit further. Um, and it doesn't have to take necessarily more time um, overall during the week. It could be just reallocating some of that load from another day. Um, I'm conscious that we're, 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 we're getting on quite a long here, a long time can I, here. But can I, sorry... Can I yeah, dive yeah. in with um, something that I haven't talked about yet, which, you know, it's getting close to my bedtime, but I won't be able to go to sleep unless I talk about this because um, it's a big concept that we haven't addressed yet. When we're talking about the adaptation zone, uh, yes, everything up until this point has been purely mechanical, like the volumes, the intensity, the, you know, terrain, hills, all that sort of stuff is um, load that's subjected to your body and, you know, whether we hit that sweet spot or overdo it or underdo it. There's another component and that is your recovery because like I said at the start, every tendon, ligament, bone, muscle has a certain capacity. That capacity fluctuates. It is not static. It can get, uh, it can go up and down, up and down throughout the week on any given week, on any given day. And that is um, manipulated by how recovered you are, but also how much sleep you're getting, how much nutrition hydration, stress. Stress is a big one. If you are in a job where you're stressed, um, if you are in a situation where you've got this these family dramas and you're not sleeping well and you've got all these things, your capacity, all those tendons, muscles, ligaments, they have a lower capacity than they once did. And so you can theoretically have an overloaded injury. You can get an overloaded running-related injury, keeping the mileage, intensity all the same. All the change was you're just not sleeping well or you're um, really stressed. Um, we talked before this, 
before we hit record, I've got a six month old daughter. And when she was born, it was no sleep. It was all stress. It was all go. I hardly ever ran or like if I did run, I made, it was really short, really easy. Cause I recognize that is not the time to push the limits. It is not the time for me to train or plan for races or do anything like that. Um, because when you are very stressed, when you have affected sleep, there's some studies to show if you have less than eight hours sleep, it increases your risk of injury by 70%. That was in adolescence, but there's definitely a link there. There is a lot of studies in adults as well, but it's a huge correlation. Um, so we do need to make sure that we're factoring that huge element that is nutrition, hydration, stress management, sleep, all of that when it comes to your training. Because I know a lot of your listeners will be not new runners. The adaptation zone probably isn't a new concept, but maybe they're not thinking about their stress levels. Maybe they're not thinking about their sleep and hydration status and those sorts of things. So very important that we address that. Yeah, absolutely. And it sort of uh, ties in with what I was, was going to ask you next about predictors or signs that injury is around the corner. Because um as you've said, some of those those factors, especially things like sleep or not feeling right, can can be an indicator that we're going to come up against something, you know, very soon in our in our training. If if something doesn't change, whether the recovery gets better or we back off in the training, um, apart from sort of tiredness and 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 stress levels, is is there anything else that we haven't haven't mentioned that would be a predictor? an injury is coming around the corner. Yeah. Um, on my podcast, I like to interview researchers and I had Eric Hegedus, who is a, a researcher and he is doing a lot of research into injury prevention and um, uses it a lot with like data and like metrics and those sorts of things. But he said like subjectively, there's four things you want to look out for to know, like if you are ranking poorly in these four areas, and injuries just around the corner, and that is sleep, which we've discussed, stress, which we've discussed, which like already those have nothing to do with running really. Um, the other is delayed onset muscle soreness, which is fine. Like we actually want muscle soreness in when you do harder sessions because that's how we get stronger. But if it's excessive muscle soreness that's really lasting like more than a couple of days or the majority of your week, we really want to be careful of that. And the other is fatigue. And so that is different from DOMS. DOMS is more like localized to a certain body part or muscle group. Um, fatigue would, what I would be considered as like, you know, systemic or like whole body kind of fatigue. Um, if you're ranking poorly in one of those, no big deal. All four of those definitely change your training, definitely reduce your um, loads and make sure those elements are being ticked off and addressed before you start building things back up. But other things we haven't discussed is just like early signs of injury. So like a little bit of stiffness here and there. Most tendinopathies really start off as stiffness, stiffness in the mornings. When plantar fasciitis is usually stiffness with your first steps in the morning. If you're walking down the stairs, in the morning and your knees are a little bit sore or um, a little bit stiffer than usual. Sure, we might not say it's an injury. Sure, we might not totally disrupt or um, shift our training, but we need to pay attention to it. And if it's happening too much, if it's happening too frequently or getting too severe, you know, odds are an injury is around the corner if we ignore these things and just push through it. Yeah, and I think that the book really follows this path of, 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 of what Pete in the book does and, and has these little niggles and sort of puts them to back to the back of his mind and doesn't really 
focus on them. And I think probably a lot of us do do that. We just kind of think, oh, probably go away tomorrow and and really checking in with is it is it improving week on week or you know are the are the symptoms still there the next day the day after um is is really important to to focus in on those things um i'd love to just ask you one more question if that's possible about um a myth that i think i've not necessarily perpetuated but more through lack of uh, knowledge of what to do when um, coaching big sessions. I'm I'm head coach of a club and you maybe have 50, 60 people there at one time and someone comes over and says, right, I've got, um, I don't know, a, a tweak here or whatever. Uh, and um, my, what should I do? And usually I will say, you know, if it persists, go and see a physio because you know, I don't really ha know what, what to do necessarily with, with specific injuries. Um, and there's a lot of people there to look after. But one thing I have said in the past is go and rest up. And I would love to hear about this potential myth of rest as a, an injury management tool. Talk to us about the downward spiral of pain, rest, weakness, if you can. Yeah. So um, on the Run Smarter podcast that I host, uh, the first 10 episodes are universal principles that you need to know to reduce your risk of injury or overcome a current injury. And one of those is addressing this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. And classic example, someone has knee pain, um, it's been developing or they've done too many hills or too much mileage. And all of a sudden they have this um, sharp pain when they're going upstairs and like, okay, I know I've overdone it. Uh, let me just rest for a week and uh, get me, let me get back into running and see how things go. And so they return to running a week later because symptoms are eased, knee pain comes back straight away. They're like, oh, damn, maybe I haven't rested for long enough. Maybe I just need more time. So they take another week off. And now when they go to run, all of a sudden the pain's more severe. It's actually coming on sooner in their run rather than like where it was before. It's actually getting worse. And like, damn, what's going on here? Like, do I need to rest more? And like you, what you are witnessing is what we call this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. Pain is being generated, forces you to rest. But when you rest, you're actually deconditioning yourself. You're not stimulating anything to preserve your capacity or preserve your fitness or preserve like the strength that you have in your joints and tendons and things. And so weakness, you're fostering weakness. And plantar fasciitis is a classic example of this. I've seen people go down this downward spiral for years until the point where they can't walk barefoot for 10 steps without flaring them up because They've just, they're so deconditioned and they've, you know, protected themselves for so long. Um, and so the answer is, okay, we need to find out where your new adaptation zone is. So the real answer, if someone has an injury, um, is saying, okay, how much can you tolerate? You maybe can't tolerate 10 minutes of running right now. Can you tolerate five minutes? If you can, let's do that. If you can't tolerate jogging on the spot for 30 seconds. Maybe running isn't for you right now. Maybe it will be in five to seven days, but you still have a capacity. You still have some adaptation zone that we still can hit because the, the adaptation sweet spot still applies. It's just now we're factoring this for your injury, for your injured site, rather than your whole entire body, like an example we're giving before. Let's find out what your knee can tolerate. Can it tolerate wall sits? Can it tolerate cycling can it tolerate swimming um, and we need to try to preserve that as much as possible and then 
build upon it. So we progress your exercises, we progress your running, we progress, you know, cross-training and certain elements to bring you back up to where that capacity was and then beyond it. And so that's why, sure, you might rest for one or two days to desensitize, like sort of get things under control if it's really bad, but we need to try and find that sweet spot and we need to, you know, work out how what where, where that sweet spot is and then progress. I guess the only um, thing would, that we'd want to rule out to treat it slightly differently would be stress fractures or a bone stress reaction. If someone's got pain in their femur or like their hips or their shin or their foot or something, we want to make sure that, okay, if it is a um, bone stress reaction, you know, we probably should keep off that for a certain period of time. We can do swimming, we can do strength training. Even now, um, we're sort of pushing the limits a little bit more in terms of what we can do with bone stress reactions. We're, t- we're tending to load people more, but we need to treat it completely differently to other overloaded injuries. It is the exception to the rule. So we do need to bear that in mind. That's so good. Um, I think that I think it's quite reassuring as well to runners that most injuries people are going to still be able to do something and should in fact keep on loading and 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 pushing themselves a little bit um to try and to try and keep that conditioning and and strength in there um whilst they build back up and i think it, it goes back to the point that um i think running pain free is often a goal that people have but it's not necessarily a, a goal that's that realistic when you are pushing pushing yourself to new limits and uh when you do have an injury that you're gonna have to go through a period where there is some kind of pain there as you you know build back up and um strengthen that area and and get back into to running i've loved this conversation um thank you so much for making the time i would love to for you to tell us a little bit about how you help runners directly and online and where people can come to hear a bit more about you and where you would like them to go. Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch on what you said before, like with um, the risk of injury and like being injured or having pain as a runner, like people, we want to try to implement strategies to reduce your risk of injury, but we can't get that risk down to zero. If your goal is to prepare for a marathon, you know, continue pushing your limits, continue running faster and further and those sorts of things, the um, there's always going to be risk. What I say to runners, what's realistic is, um, you know, doing what we've talked about today, like these really safe, making running as safe as possible. But if symptoms do arise, which is inevitable, doing the right things early, being proactive, what you can do so you can return back to pain-free running without losing any fitness and then just move forward, learn from that little hiccup and then, you know, strive forward stronger than ever. That's really the goal. That's a realistic goal for a lot of people. And that's what the podcast itself highlights. This is how you can be proactive. This is what you do. These are how to interpret pain levels when you are injured and overcoming injuries and those sorts of things. And like I said at the start, if, um, well, I should say um, the Run Smarter podcast, you can find that, listen to those first 10 episodes if you want, and then scroll through the list. Um, there's over 300 episodes, so I know it's a bit daunting, but the um, it's all episodes and lessons for you to be able to run smarter. And then if you are struggling with an injury and you are uh, needing extra assistance, um, I have runsmarter.online is my website. And 
on there, there's a link to book in for a free 20-minute injury chat if people are looking to looking for answers or what to do. And then on the, those calls, I usually like to give a bit of advice on what it looks like working together. And so um, it's usually a good uh, introduction for people to introduce myself and what I offer. But I usually recommend people go to the podcast and see if you can educate yourself first and overcome your injury first. And I've had a lot of people be like, you're doing yourself a disservice as an online physio because I've worked on and addressed and overcome my injury without even needing you just listen to the podcast, but that's the goal I have. So um, do that as step one. And then if we do need extra assistance, then you've got my website. That's fantastic. I will link all of those uh, links in the the show notes um, below. And I will add in a further thing where I know we've alluded to it a lot during, during the, the course of the show, but do go and get Brody's book. It is a really good resource as well. Um, it's really well-written in terms of um, understanding um, someone's real life experience and then explaining it a bit more with science backed behind it and then also breaking it down. I love the way that there's the key action points at the end of, of each chapter. So go and check out that, go and check out the app. And yeah, if you are struggling with anything right now, uh, Brody would be a great point of call to to go and find out more about your specific injury. Brody, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and I uh, hope you get some sleep tonight. Thank you. It was great to be on here. Great to have a chat. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope you've got something to take away and action in your own running. If you enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe and recommend it to someone you know. If you're struggling with your own training or want to get faster and stronger and not sure how to, the runningrules.com forward slash coaching is where you can find out more about getting personalized help with your running and nutrition to take you to the next level. Have a great week, stay consistent, focused, and most importantly, enjoy your running.